happy Halloween from AM to DM. Today we have director Paul Feig on the show, plus many more spooky surprises. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She's Stephanie McNeil, and you are watching AM to DM. And I just have to say, I really appreciate your commitment to, to the spookiness. You know, it's over. one of those things where you either have to go hard or go home, and I just decided you to go really hard. Went hard. You went really went hard. Went hard in the spooky season. I was actually kind of, they made me film it behind the set in this, like, creepy little space, and I was getting kind of creeped out. I mean, it, that was a legitimately creepy video, yeah. I have to say. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank well, you. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Here is a tweet from Neil Ornay. Happy Halloween. Wear that costume. Eat that candy. And if you're Michael Myers, maybe do some anger management classes. I mean, maybe those two. Here's a tweet from Pixelated Boat. Fair warning, I will not be giving any candy to a child whose Halloween costume does not meet the technical aesthetic standards of modern cosplay. And I just have to say that I co-sign on this. If you show up at my front door and your costume is not a work of art, then I will not be giving you free candy. I feel like we're like two different sides of the Halloween spectrum because you have <laughs> incredible costumes. I don't know if anyone else follows Alex on Instagram, but her Cruella Deville was sublime. Yes, it was very over the top. Meanwhile, I was telling you before the show that I basically don't want to spend any more than like $10 on a costume. Yeah, and I am spending far too much money <laughs> on my Halloween costume, to be honest with you. I just don't, I don't know. I'm not very creative. I'm not, I'm not an artist. And I just, I, I don't know. I can never, I can never commit. I honestly haven't dressed up in probably five years. Do you have any favorite costumes from the past though? Yeah, so when I was a kid, my mom is very creative and she would make costumes for me. So I have, I tweeted out a photo of me as Madeline and I loved Madeline as a this kid. This is perfect, like, nailed it. Yeah, my mom did a great job. Um, and I always had really, you know what it is? One time I really committed to a costume and I went all out and I wanted to win this prize at the school fair oh. and I didn't win. And honestly, since then, I think I've just had a chip on my shoulder. You know what, Stephanie, I'm sensing some emotional baggage around this holiday it's for true. you. It sounds like you have some things like you need to work, need to work through, through. through. Exactly. Work through it on the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> well, we want to hear from you. Let's take it to the timeline. Send us a photo of your favorite Halloween costume from over the years and tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Before we move along, can I just draw attention to one of my favorite costumes of all time, which was when I dressed as a donut from the Target children's section. Comfortable, and that one was, I think, only like $15 because it was a children's costume. That's kind of so, like a sexy donut. If you want to call it a sexy donut, you could call it a sexy donut. I feel like you like <laughs> look like Ariana Grande as a donut. I'm like, hey, which also oh, uh, an amazing you're the tribute. donut yes. that Ariana, Ariana Grande, Grande licked. licked. Okay, so now I'm going to have to revamp this costume and bring yes, it back for another that year. Yes, that is, oh, that's amazing. And you say you're not creative. Eh, Come on. I, I can look at other people's stuff and be creative, <laughs> but when it comes to like trying to glue things, All right. not good, not good. All right, here's a tweet from Jack Dorsey. We've made the decision to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. We believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. This huge decision by Twitter has a lot of people turning to Facebook for a response. As our own Ryan Mack tweeted, Twitter is banning political ads as Jack Dorsey throws down the gauntlet to Mark Zuckerberg. Vox reporter Emily Stewart joins us now to discuss. Good morning. Good morning. So why is Twitter's decision so monumental? Well, I mean, honestly, in sort of the realm of political advertising, Twitter isn't that big of a deal for political campaigns. But 
as you said, this is sort of a, a, a challenge to Facebook, which is a big deal in political advertising and which has come under a lot of pressure to either fact check their political ads or to stop advertising altogether. And Twitter was very obvious in this. Jack Dorsey tweeted yesterday about the same time that Facebook was announcing its earnings, making it very clear this was a direct challenge to Facebook. I feel like Dorsey is really hammering home that this is a question of principle for him. And he seems to view this as an almost moral issue. What is at the heart of that issue? Well, I mean, let's be honest. Twitter is not perfect, right? They are not great at policing their platform either. This is in part a PR move, but I think it's also him saying, you know, we are trying to get better with bots, with fake content when it's not paid for. So why... If somebody pays for content, then we say, well, put out whatever you want. And I think that is an interesting distinction for him to make. I mean, it is an interesting distinction just because I was immediately thinking of all these like fake meme accounts, um, you know, especially that come out around President Trump that also sometimes get uh, retweeted by President Trump. And those aren't necessarily paid for either. So how much of an impact um, will this policy actually have on the 2020 election? I mean, again, it's not that huge, like really political advertising, most of the budget online goes to Facebook and it goes to Google. So this isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, there are people that are not happy about it. The Trump campaign, his campaign manager, Brad Parscale, has said that he's not real thrilled. There has been some discussion about whether or not this is going to hurt down ballot candidates or candidates who are just up and coming who don't have the organic reach. Um, You know, I I think we're going to see what happens. But again, I think really kind of the big question here is what Facebook does now. Yeah, it's kind of the littler guy drawing a line in the sand trying to see what the big guy is going to do. On that note, I want to read a tweet from our reporter Alex Kantrowitz who said, Zuck says he's considered whether Facebook should run political ads and will continue to do so. Okay, so Facebook, it sounds, at least for now, is going to stick with the status quo. They're not backing down on this principle that they have. What is their strategy here? I mean, basically what they keep saying is this is a question of free speech, that they value speech on their platform, that they think people should be able to say what they want to say, including politicians, and that really voters need to decide. Um, You know, they've really dug in on this, and you've seen on the left some people challenging this. You had a few weeks ago Elizabeth Warren ran a fake ad on Facebook to sort of prove her point, had AOC questioning Mark Zuckerberg asking, hey, can I run ads? saying that Republicans supported the Green New Deal. You know, Facebook is determined to dig in on this. I think that you know, ultimately they understand that if they do start policing ads, if they do start saying this ad is fake, you know, that's not going to be politically popular. They're going to get a lot of blowback. It's also hard to do. But right now they seem to really be digging their heels in. But it also seems at the same time that Facebook's reputation was so damaged by everything that happened in 2016. So um, how, how are they gaming this out like, is their reputation improving at all? I mean, at this point, I don't know if their reputation is improvable. I mean, right now, I think that you can see that they're clearly stuck in a hard place. I'm not sure if it's over the weekend, but um, on Monday, a man started running for governor in California, basically saying the whole point was that he was going to run fake ads. And then Facebook said, well, you can't do this. Um, You know, they are making their rules. They are also breaking their own rules. I think that they are in a tough spot. I think Democrats sort of testing this out is maybe not great either. Um, But I mean, all eyes are on them and they have to figure out what to do. And right now they're sticking to what they say they're going to do. 
Yeah. Why do you why do you think that um, Facebook has become such the leader in this? You know, something interesting is you mentioned Google, and we're not really discussing Google at all. Can you break that down for our viewers? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think ultimately, like Facebook has just had scandal after scandal after scandal for so long that that a lot of companies, including Google and honestly Twitter, have been either able to sort of skate by. You know, it's easy to if you're Facebook or if you're Google or Twitter, you know, don't make noise right now. And I think Facebook, starting with Cambridge Analytica and just every, it seems like they're in this cycle of we made a mistake, we denied the mistake, we apologize, and so. You know, we're all paying a lot of attention to them. And I think Facebook just a lot more present maybe in our everyday lives. You know, yeah, we're all on Google, but we're not necessarily thinking about like, the ads that were being served there. Mm. Well, this is all really interesting. So Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Um, people on Facebook are recommending this flesh-eating fake cancer cure. Hmm. Here is a tweet from Katie Natopoulos. People think that Black Solve magically only eats away at cancer cells. This is not true. It eats all skin. In these groups, people are told to skip a real diagnosis for skin cancer and just apply the solve. And if it starts eating their skin, then yes, it was cancer. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And here's another tweet from Katie. Facebook has vowed to crack down on health misinformation, but apart from anti-vax stuff, it doesn't really seem clear at all how they determine what counts as sensational health claims. Katie is a BuzzFeed News reporter and she joins us more. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you guys? We are good. Um, And I have to say, I'd never heard of Black Solve until this story. So what is happening in these Facebook groups? Um, I mean, it's not surprising. It's a pretty niche form of, you know, alternative medicine if you're being generous or, you know, quackery if you're not. you know, it's it's not it's nowhere as popular out there in you know the sort of public consciousness as you know anti-vaxxers or you know stuff like people who do even like crystals or other sort of like wellness products. Um, but it's it's been around for a long time. Um, I, I actually just had a doctor tweet at me that he treated someone in the '90s who had used this uh, to try to treat their cancer and you know had some sort of disastrous results. Um, but, you know, with social media and on Facebook in these groups, I think that sort of accelerated and promoted the use of this, which is a, a dangerous cure. That's something that I feel like we're seeing a lot on, especially in Facebook groups recently, right, with all of these weird pseudosciences things. Like you said, from the 90s, I'm thinking about essential oils a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but they have basically exploded through this distribution of information on the Internet. I'm always very curious as a reporter myself and for everyone watching, how did you find mm-hmm. these people? Um, that's a great question. I, so I've actually been in these Facebook groups for a long time. Um, and I, I believe that I had sort of maybe initially found them through another Facebook group that was devoted to sort of debunking um, what they call woo, uh, sort of fake medicine stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, that made me curious that I had never heard of it. It made me curious that it existed. I joined these other groups just to find out what was going on. And they sort of went on for years. Um, and what happens in the groups is a lot of people, you know, it's people who use it discussing it with each other. And a lot of the times they'll discuss their positive results, um, which, you know, as I, you read before, because they don't necessarily get a real diagnosis for skin cancer once the skin cancer is 
cured, you know, which may have not been cancer in the first place, then it seems like a success. Um, and uh, I mean, it's really sort of like gross and gruesome and graphic because it's a lot of sort of like really nasty wounds. Um, and I sort of had for years just thought, well, you know, this is just one of those things that exists out there on the, you know, on the internet. Um, technically, uh, the the product Black Salve is not, uh, it's not available for sale in the U.S. The FDA has banned it. Um, but people still, they'll ship it from overseas. People will share recipes of how to make it yourself because it's, you can, you, you can sort of source the ingredients for it yourself and make it. Um, but it wasn't really until... This past year that Facebook has publicly said that it's going to start cracking down on health misinformation, starting with anti-vax stuff. And that sort of made me think, okay, well, if they're cracking down on anti-vax, what about this black salve stuff? Because, you know, this is dangerous. There's people in these groups who have died because they chose to treat real cancer with this fake medicine instead of getting traditional treatments. Um, you know, anti-vax is much you know, bigger, a lot more people are aware of it. There's a lot more people who believe it. You know, it has the potential to have a really devastating effect, you know, if there's a large outbreak. Um, but in reality, you know, there's been zero deaths in the U.S. from measles in like five years. Um, you know, whereas in these groups, there have actually been like several people who've died. And it's a much, much smaller population of people who are using this. Um, so it sort of made me wonder, okay, how is Facebook making judgments about what counts as health misinformation? Wow, that is something. I don't even really know what to <laughs> yeah. say to all of that. It's horrifying. It's yeah, so horrifying. Yes. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for reporting on these weird corners of the internet that people really need to start paying attention yeah. to. All right, get your yearly skin cancer screening, everyone. Already we, we did. Will, Already did. That. That. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, this there, This story is so wild just because in these groups, there are people who report dying for not having their cancer treated, um, and yet people still continue to use this stuff, so. Yeah, and it also, I think, we can really focus on Facebook, you know, bringing us back to our first story. We can focus on this in disinformation yeah. campaigns that are being spread on Facebook, and obviously that is a problem, but it is not just a political problem. This is a problem that is spreading through every single corner of the platform, and it really needs to be, I mean, I mean, we need to yeah, figure it yeah, out. Yeah, we need to figure it out, yeah. Well, coming up, I'm sitting down with last Christmas director Paul Feig, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. Let's just get right into these tweets. Let's do it. Why wait? They're Halloween themed. Brittany, you tweeted, I hate Halloween. How dare these children force me, an adult, to have candy in my home when I have absolutely no self-control? Which is true. I don't even, I don't even do that at all. <laughs> I mean, I bought, I bought a bag for my husband of um, like that Halloween candy corn popcorn from Trader Joe's. So I guess huh. if any children happen to stop by, I'll just... You're just going to give them some candy I guess I could put it in a Ziploc. I don't know if I can really get on board with this candy corn popcorn. <laughs> yeah, people anyways, are going to be so. like, oh, throw away oh, immediately. Yeah, well, let's take it to the timeline. What's your favorite type of Halloween candy? Tweet us using the hashtag aim to dm I am forever a Reese's peanut butter cup kind of gal. Yeah, we were talking about this. I don't like Reese's. That hurts me. I know. I know. I on, Rude. <laughs> rude. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. I, I really like Reese's Pieces. I like peanut butter. I like chocolate. I, ever since I was a little kid, I've always felt like it was like too intense. And I just, I've honestly like, no, I can't do it. I, I am personally offended. So let's just go to the next tweet. All right. That's enough. Well, <laughs> your loss. <laughs> Noelle, you tweeted, why do you take so long in the shower? Me, 40 minutes into my shower. Can I live? Like, can I just have a moment of relaxation under this hot water? So we were having a debate. Do you think that this dog in the shower is just enjoying the water happily? Or do you think that he's crying? It's hard to say. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go with enjoy just because I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to be like downers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Johnny, you tweeted, what do you call relationship weight when you're single asking for myself? And I say, you do you. Who cares? I think you call that your like winter hibernation layer. Yeah, and I say, all bodies are good bodies. So whatever makes you happy. True. Live your life. All right. The wine whisperer. Ooh, I need to talk to the yellow grape 10. I need to talk to you. I hate jobs that do three interviews. Bitch, if I'm coming, if I come the third time, I'm clocking in. Yeah, I, that's so stressful. I get this because uh, as someone who has freelanced in the past, when you are going in and talking to people, that is your time. And when yeah. you're a freelancer, time is money. It's literally stopping you from doing other work. Also, what happens when you like kind of become friends with your interviewer and then maybe you'll never see them again? It's also awkward when you already have a job too, because like you can only have so many like, oh, I have a doctor's appointment. Now I have a dentist's appointment. <laughs> now I have a- Listen, I just before have three they, doctor's appointments. Yeah, before okay? people start to be like, are you okay? But there's like, there's no, we, no I don't, we haven't figured out like how to do that non-awkwardly. Yeah. And then they're always like, can you come in at noon? You're like, yeah. I don't know. All right, tweet of the day. One, two, three. This comes from Oscar. Why is it that your clothes only get caught on the door handle when you're in a bad mood? Yeah. Yeah. That's just, it's, it's real. real. This is real. This is real. I think it's probably because you're rushing and so you're like, and you're like all discombobulated. I, you know, this happens to me every time I wear a scarf. It's getting caught in weird places. It happens when I have a bag strap, but only at the most inconvenient times when I really need to be going somewhere. Yeah, you're like running, like your bag is hanging off your arm and then you're just like, ah! Holds you back. Your cat is just like. <laughs> I mean, just me. No. That's probably mine, mine too, mine too. <laughs> Coming up, you're going to get to see Alex to sit down with Paul Teague, but up next, more and DM. It's Halloween, so we have a spooky story for you. Are you ready, Steph? Clearly you are ready, I think. I mean, I'm I'm digging this vibe, I'm digging the lights, I'm digging the sound. Yeah. You match the thing even more I than do, usual. I do, I do. So yeah, I'm digging it. All right, so this tale took over the timeline yesterday and it comes to us from horror writer Grady Hendrix. It all started on a dark and stormy night. Just kidding, it all started <laughs> with this tweet. When I turned nine, I realized I could sneak downstairs after everyone was asleep and eat anything I wanted in the fridge. No one ever noticed. Well, that sounds innocent, right? No, Grady wrote a spooky thread to scare us all and he joins us now to tell us the rest of the tale. Happy Halloween, Grady. Thanks for joining us. Hey, how are y'all? Okay, so just to be super clear, before we get started, you are a horror writer, correct? This is not a true story, correct? People pay me money to do these things. All right. Okay. Well, that makes right. me feel a little bit better. Yes. So let's set the scene. You're a child. You keep seeking down for a snack. What do you see? 
Well, also, you're burying the lead a little bit. To me, the real horror in this story is I did actually, as a child, sneak down and raid the fridge at night when I realized I could do it and made a lot of peanut butter, mayonnaise, and cheese with oh, sandwiches, oh, which oh, it was hard to go public with that. You know, I feel that, like, is, that is truly terrifying to me. Yeah. People have a hard time looking at me in the eye now that they know that about me. No, but the but the story is that, that I, I would sneak down and, you know, the thing about your house when you're a kid is it's totally different when the lights are off. It's a completely different country and all the landmarks are different. So I had to learn to sort of ninja my way down in total silence because even though we owned the food, I didn't think I was supposed to be eating the food. So, you know, I was worried I'd get caught eating it. So ninja down, total darkness. I got really good at it, actually. Um, and then one night I was going into the kitchen and, and our den leads right to this kitchen counter, looks into the kitchen. And um, that's sort of where I could let my guard down. and. I stopped because we had a microwave and by the clock I could sort of see something on the other side of the counter and then I heard a fork uh, hit the counter and froze and I could make out that there was a guy sitting at our kitchen counter eating um, Chinese takeout to be honest um, which I had wanted to eat but that wasn't really what was troubling me what was troubling me is there was a guy in our house and if you've ever had someone in your house unexpectedly it's really horrifying it's really disorienting it's really violating um and so i like totally like silent ninja in complete panic my way upstairs got my mom and uh, my sisters all lived out of the house at that point um and you know parents don't believe anything you tell them so she made way too much noise took way too long got down the kitchen's fine i'm an idiot stop waking me up you know blah 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 we'll have to talk about what you watch on cable so the summer passes, because that was like in May of 81, and the summer passes, and, um, you know, she tells my sisters, ha-ha, your brother thinks there's someone in our kitchen eating our leftovers. No one ever asked what I was doing there in the first place. And probably around mid-August, I was in my room hanging out. I was inside. I wasn't allowed inside during the day in the summer. That's just the way our neighborhood was, so I was, like, really lucking out. And I looked up, and there's an air conditioning vent over my bed, and there's, like, eyes behind it. Um, I freak again, uh, and I'm really aware that like, I'm becoming the boy who cried wolf in my family. I get my mom, again, nothing, but I'm really pushing it this time. They open up the crawl space under the house, they look at it, she goes in the attic, nothing, nothing, nothing. Once again, I'm, you know, an idiot. I feel like, I feel very much like I'm being gaslit at this point. So, starting probably like, right before school started again, so it must have been the last week of August, first week of September, um, I think there's rice in my bed. Uh, and then I notice it's sort of falling from the AC vent. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, it's styrofoam. It's something like that that's broken up. And it moves. <gasps> and it's maggots. And at that point when I got my mom, you know, they get she gets the AC people. They say, oh, it's a raccoon or something. It turned out to be a dude who had, we lived in an older house. There was lots of space behind the walls. Lots of the air vents were really big and inefficient. Um, and this guy had died back there and the thing I really freaked out about was that he had put a foam pad up in the vents over my room because he spent the most time there and you know these days people will in my family have varying versions of this story but the one I swear someone was talking about is he had lots of drawings and no one would tell me what the drawings were um, and they were very careful not to let any of us see them so, and no one ever figured out who he was. He was just sort of a John Doe, like, and 
weirdly enough, in South Carolina at the time, there wasn't even a fridge in the morticians, like the the, the county morgue. So they kept bodies for like three days and then John Doe'd them. So no one claimed on it. He's well, John Doe well, to this day. Listen, this is truly terrifying. And I will recommend our viewers to go and check out the entire thread for the whole story uh, so they can see it for themselves. But Grady, thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah, oh, oh always happy. Thank you for creeping us out thoroughly. <laughs> I'm very creeped out. That is, uh, I love I love that about Twitter. It's that you could share all these really cool threads and stories. Oh, yes. And we, we love that about Twitter and sharing that with you guys. So hopefully you guys were a little creeped out too. Up next, Alex is talking to Last Christmas and Bridesmaids director, Paul Feig. Here's a tweet from Jeff Yang. Just saw Last Christmas, and I do believe Paul Feig has become one of our premier creators of chocolate truffle-like films with exemplary casts, dark, bittersweet storylines, and surprisingly nutty centers, neatly wrapped for impulse consumption, and Henry Golding is 100% his muse. Joining me now is Paul Feig, director of so many comedies like Bridesmaids, Ghostbusters, Spy, and now Last Christmas. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. My gosh. And, what, and Jeff, my God. What a, <laughs> I think it was a compliment. Yeah, it was definitely a compliment. <laughs> no, thank you so much. No, that's, first of all, Henry Golding just is, yeah, he, he kind of is my muse. I feel like I found my Cary Grant with this Oh guy. my gosh, really? He's the greatest. I, have you met him yet? He's, he's. I mean, no, I'm, anytime I would love to, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, come on in, Henry. No, I wish I, wish I could do that for you. Um, um, no, he, you know, I met him on A Simple Favor when I yeah. worked with him on that, and we just became really close friends. And when I read this role of Tom, the role of Tom in, in this great script that, uh, uh, you know, Emma Thompson wrote, I was just like, this is this is him, but this is really who Henry is, this kind of charming, mm-hmm. buoyant, positive, you mm-hmm. know, just upbeat guy, and he's the best. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you mentioned that Emma Thompson wrote uh, the actual script, and so, and she's in the movie, of course, as well. Yeah. Um, what was it like when you got the sc- the screenplay from her? Right. Yeah. Well, it was it was the, the greatest surprise of my life <laughs> because I was trying to figure out what to do next, and I was going to sign on to another project. I was literally about to, to you know sign this contract, and this script popped into my inbox from Emma Thompson because I was supposed to do, remember the movie, you remember, it was only a year ago, the movie, <laughs> the movie La- uh, Late Night mm-hmm. that Mindy Kaling yeah. wrote. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to direct that oh, wow. and then we just had scheduling issues we couldn't do it. But I, Emma and I kind of hit it off from mm-hmm. that and so we kept saying, we got to do something together. We have similar sense of humor and similar sensibilities. Yeah, so then she just dropped this script on me and you know, I read it and just was like, I cleared the decks, got rid of the other movie. I'm sorry uh, <laughs> to the people doing that movie. They still hate me. Um, and just we dove in and made this movie. What about it like really pulled you into it? It's it's so emotional and it's so funny mm-hmm. also, but it's this lead character that Amelia Clark plays. Mm-hmm. She's a really great, difficult female character. And I love that, you know, and I really, I'm I'm so tired of guys getting to start out being Scrooge and being Mm -hmm. crazy. And everybody's like, oh, that's great. But if it's a woman, it's like, oh, she's not likable. You know, so this was just like, let's go for it. And, you know, and Amelia Clark's so wonderful anyway. And uh, yeah, so we just kind of went for it and and I love it. But, you know, Emma Thompson's such a brilliant writer that she just found all these levels. Yeah, well, I found myself really getting lost in some of the scenes just in the the streets of London, especially Mm -hmm. when there was snow around. It was so evocative of all of these other uh, kind of British romantic comedies. Like I was thinking about Bridget Jones and yeah. Love Actually. What was it like getting to take to the streets with Amelia Clark and also uh, Henry Golding? Well, it was a dream come true. I'm such an Anglophile. My wife and I met 
29 years ago and fell in love over our love of London. And uh, I've always been going like, how can I show off London the way I mm. love it? And I, I'm, with, I'm with you. I, I think Bridget Jones is one of the ones that really showed off London so beautifully with the snow in the end and the big fight and all that. So yeah, I was just like, I'm going to show every place that I love. But in order to do that, you have to shoot in the middle of the night. And it's <laughs> freezing cold. And we had to start shooting at 2 a.m. every night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. lots of drunk people out at uh, about 3 to 5 a.m. And uh, I got proposed to on the, on the street. Oh, by, you don't say. Yeah, by this uh, slightly in, inebriated woman who, <laughs> who came up to me. And I, I dress like this all the time on set. And, and she goes, hey, you look like a proper English gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> kind of man I would marry. And I was like, well, thank you. Thank I you wasn't very much. celebrating thank my 25 year anniversary. Maybe we'd give it a shot. Oh my but, gosh. That's, and then she proposed at the lamppost. That's so. very yeah, funny. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, one thing too is that a lot of your films have uh, a lot of improvisation in mm -hmm. them. Um, was that also true of this one? Uh, we did less on this because mm -hmm. Emma's script was so great. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, to get that chemistry between your two lead actors, you want them to play. So, mm -hmm. so they were playing around the edges and we were playing with a lot of stuff that way. And also, there's a lot of kind of what I call performance improv. Hmm. Like, try it really angry this time. Try it really funny this time. Try it really, you know, really sad. And just play with these different tones and levels. But, you know, but Emma Thompson was with me on the set the entire time. I said, you're, you're the writer. You're hmm. one of the producers. Hmm. I want you here. And she wanted to be. But she wasn't originally going to be in the movie. Uh, we were just going to, you know, cast somebody for that role. But I was going like, wait, I'm going to have one of the greatest actresses of all time on set with me the entire time, and I'm not going to put her on screen. So I said to Emma, I said, like, you have to play the yeah. mom. And she's like, well, should I? I said, do it. You're going to do it. And she destroyed And then she did it. She destroyed it. But you had movie. to give her a little bit of encouragement. Of course. Well, she's so, <laughs> she's so nice. She wanted another actress to have that role, you know, just somebody. And I was just like, no, it's got to be you. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you mentioned that I have a great appreciation for is that um, you're not afraid to put uh, complicated women uh, in front of the camera, you know, especially as you mentioned. Mentioned Amelia Clark's character. We see a big evolution from her. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that word likable, which I mean, it's so true. It's like women should be able to contain multitudes on screen. We shouldn't yeah. have to worry about that. God forbid. Yeah. And I mean, you've made a huge effort too to, to do women-fronted projects. Mm -hmm. um, you even have an inclusion writer at your production company. Mm -hmm. How do you think your work has benefited from those decisions? Oh my, it, it just makes it so deep. I, I, I have these three-dimensional portrayals of wonderful women. I get to work with these amazing women. And I'm, you know, by my whole company, I'm surrounded by, by women because that's the only way, look, I'm still a guy. I'm going <laughs> to go, hey, try this joke. And someone will be like, we don't really, you know, wouldn't say that, but it's good, please. How would we say it? You know, and then we'll kind of, you know, then we'll find the way that's honest for them and I get what I need out of the scene. And then everybody feels kind of served and you get, a, you know, again, a three-dimensional portrayal of a, of a mm. woman, God forbid. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, as I'm sure most of our viewers know, um, you directed the all-women's remake of Ghostbusters in 2016. Mm -hmm. Are there any other male-centric franchises that you would want to flip, gender flip some of those roles? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I did my one. It really went well. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> The internet just embraced me with love and hugs. Um, you know what? It, 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 every story kind of presents itself in a new way. And if yeah. there's, yeah, if something comes along, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm more about genres. Mm. And I go, well, this kind of this genre has been very male dominated. Let's have fun just flipping it. Just because I have all these actresses that I love that I want yeah. to put in movies. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, some uh, loving some genres, and you're now working on a new film about Universal monsters. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about this. Like, how's it going? Well, it's going really well. I finished the first draft. I, I, I can't talk about the details of it, but it, I'm very excited it. about it. Um, yeah, no, it, it's in the grand tradition of the old, like, James Whale ones, of, like Bride of Frankenstein, the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein itself. Just because those movies, they were scary, 
but they were also had a good sense of humor about themselves. Really campy too, to me. Exactly. Yeah. You know what it is? Because they're all the emotions and the characters are so extreme, but they're like real. So they're very extreme versions of real people. And so you have fun with that, but you buy it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really on fire about this one. I mean, the internet is very excited about that one. So I don't know if you've been paying attention at all. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I read. No, I, I, like, I, always, I, like, I always do. I, I love the internet because I want to take the temperature and see what people yeah. think of things. You know, and with Ghostbusters, even when I first put the idea out there, it was just a day of joy. And then the second day was just, then, yeah. it, all, then it all started happening. I mean, like the internet can go from being an enthusiastic to like not so enthusiastic. Weird, isn't very that? Quickly. Do, you, do you internalize that stuff? Like, do you actually, once you see the reaction, does that end up impacting the actual work that you're doing? Well, it, it definitely, it does affect you, but it affects me more on the as the kid who used to be bullied in school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the hardest thing with, with the Ghostbusters thing because I just wasn't, I kind of wasn't prepared for that mm-hmm. because up until that point, I've had a really good relationship with, with the internet. It yeah. was just, you know, because of Bridesmaids and Freaks and Geeks and all that stuff. So I wasn't ready for it. Now, having gone through years of that, now you just, you just kind of laugh and go like, look, every, yeah. people are outraged about stuff. I can't be, you know, I can't try to please everybody. So we're just going to try to do the right thing. I feel like that is a good and healthy mindset to have about it. So, <sighs> yes, exactly. Yes. Well, speaking of a film that um, has become like such a cult favorite on the internet, um, Bolu Babaloa tweeted, thinking about how A Simple Favor is probably one of my favorite films, actually. Yay. Yeah, what has it been to been like to see uh, this film get such a passionate fan base? I'm thrilled, because honestly, pound for pound, it might be my favorite movie I've made. Wow. Yeah, and it, but it was one of those ones, when we were making it, I was going like, oh, I hope this isn't the one where people go like, oh, that looks great, I can't wait to watch it on streaming, you know? And, and we, we did well, but I always kind of wished we did better. And so it's so exciting that people are, are finding it, because, I mean, Blake and Anna are so good in that movie. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and so I get more frustrated. Obviously, you want a movie to be successful, but I get frustrated because I want people to see the amazing work that the people I mm-hmm. work with do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just love that it's kind of finding its finding its place. I have to ask you, Blake Lively's character wears some fashion that is a little bit like your fashion. I mean. Well, no, it, <laughs> when we were putting it together, we were trying, what's her look? We wanted something really extreme for her and cool. And Renee Kalfas is our amazing costume designer who also did Last Christmas. And yeah, we were sitting around trying to figure it out. And I dress like this, like I said, all the time. And Blake's goes, I want to dress like you. <laughs> and so we did. And, and uh, Ralph Lauren sent all these wow. um, old suits from their archives, these women's suits, and some men's suits too. And then Renee and Blake just went in there with these accessories and just altered them. And I mean, oh my God, every time she'd show up in a new outfit, it'd be like, oh my God, that's <laughs> the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah, they, they are some amazing looks. Well, I, I want to get into a topic that um, you all recently weighed in on, which is that about Netflix. And they said that they're considering a service that would actually speed up uh, playback Mm -hmm. on movies and TV. Um, And you tweeted, we don't make movies and shows to simply deliver a plot in the way the news is delivered. Our pacing and timing is part of who we are and what we do as filmmakers and storytellers. Um, What do you think, uh, is there anything in your work that you immediately thought of that people will miss if they start speeding up that their movies. Honestly, our voice as filmmakers is our pace, as weird as that sounds. You know, it's like like Freaks and Geeks is the same way. Like, we're, I'm not a plot-heavy, you know, director. I mean, if you look at my movies, they're pretty thin on plot. I mean, but probably Simple Favors been the most plotty one I ever did because we had this amazing script. So all you have are these character moments and how the characters interact. That's where my voice is mm-hmm. because that's my sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And so if you, you know, this thing of like, well, I just want to speed through it to know the story. It's like, well, I don't. I don't care about the story that much, you know. So if that's all you're trying to get out of this, to me, it's like going. 
Well, let me just go to the back of this Agatha Christie book and see who did it. And then I'm going to read the book. It's like, well, what's the point? Yeah. Well, you mentioned Freaks and Geeks. It, of course, is the 20th anniversary. Um, it was based on your own high school experience. Mm-hmm. I know people have uh, raised the question of a reboot before, but would you ever let uh, someone reboot it with maybe even all new characters or something to that effect? I mean, we've been uh, just approached so many times yeah. about it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I get really kind of precious about just like, I think we did it. I think yeah. we kind of got it right. I'm always more worried about the thing that comes along and sort of back taints, you know, mm-hmm. what you did. And look, now, look, they're all so talented. It would probably be great. And if I suddenly went like, I know I've got the idea, I would rather do, you know, something with the cast in, you know, today, you know, or whatever, the, you know, the amount of time in the future that it would have been. But I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not quite into it, but Never say never. Yeah. Well, listen, I get it. You don't want to mess with the classic. So. Exactly. Yeah. I'm very proud of that show. And we kind of, you almost feel like you got away with something. We go like, okay, we're happy <laughs> with all the episodes. Like, step away. That's it. That's it. Well, listen, <laughs> it has been so much fun getting to talk to you. So oh thank goodness. you for joining me. Thank you. It's so great. And then happy Halloween. I know it, for me, it's just Christmas all all year long. But uh, let's just say I this. Love it. My, my, my Halloween costume is Christmas. Wonderful. Well, last Christmas is in theaters on November 8th. Up next, we're talking to Terminator star Diego Bonetta. You may recognize our next guest from Screen Queens and the international hit show, Luis Miguel. Now he's starring in the brand new movie, Terminator, Dark Fate. Welcome, Diego Bonetta. Diego, thank, <laughs> thank you so you. much for coming on. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So Terminator, such a big franchise. It's so exciting. Were you a fan of the franchise before you stepped into it? How did... Big fan of T2. Big fan of T2. You know, it came out when I was a kid. I watched it with my dad. And, you know, till this day, I think it's one of the best action movies, sci-fi movies ever. Yeah, definitely. So what was it like when you got the call that you were going to be in? It's such an iconic franchise, but it's like, I feel like it's made so many global superstars. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, <laughs> well, uh, they, they, they put us through the ringer when, you know, for the whole, like, audition process. It oh, was really? months of auditioning. Uh, I was sent in my first tape when I was still shooting Luis Miguel, like in February, and then did the screen test in Dublin with Mackenzie and uh, Natalia Reyes, um, who's, you know, part of the new cast in, I guess, like around April. And then, so it was, you know, months and months of next stage, next stage, next stage, till you finally get it. It's like, finishing a marathon, you know, it's... That sounds yeah. nerve-wracking. Did you it have a feeling the whole time you were going to get it? Or were you kind of... Did you have a gut feeling? Uh, you know, Stephanie, it's like you have to really manage expectations. And it's, it's, right. it's tough, you know. It's, it's, I think one of the toughest things of being an actor is that you get put through these situations many times, you know, where you're auditioning and you almost get it and it's projects that you really want and then for some reason that's out of your control it doesn't end up happening, right? So you have to care enough, but not too much. You know, it's like, it's that fine balance. But here, honestly, I had no idea. It, it was kind of like a 50-50 thing. And like I said, you just kind of go in, you give it your best. And if you know you did your best, then, you know, that's really all you can do. Actors control this much. I feel like that's great advice for everyone trying something new or trying to grow in their career. Okay, so for fans of the franchise, can you set the scene for the beginning of the movie? I think we have a little part of it oh, that'll play in the background, okay. but go ahead and go ahead and talk over it. What is the beginning of the movie? The beginning of the movie, so it starts off where T2 left off. Um, 
So it's, you know, 20 something years after Tutu, I think 27 or 28 years after. Starts in Mexico City, um, which is great because I'm from Mexico City. So it was, you know, it's awesome. I love that. And uh, you basically get introduced to the uh, uh, Ramos family, uh, to uh, Danny and Diego. I, I, I play Diego, it's kind of confusing. I'm Diego, I play Diego. That's Easy enough to remember your name on set, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, you know, they're just a normal family from Mexico City, working class family. Uh, I'm the older brother, but Danny's really kind of acts like the oldest, you know, because she's so responsible and is all about, you know, working and getting out of Mexico and speaking English. And Diego's just kind of like, you know, just having fun, you know, kind of like a lovable mess uh, in a sense. And then all of a sudden, this. Terminator from the future, you know, uh, comes out of nowhere. And, you know, w w what I really like is that the whole setup is very grounded, you know, and, um, you know, you really get to see um, and, 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 you know, feel for the family, right, in, 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 the, in the first act. Um, That's an important part, I feel like, of these kind of movies is, you know, you have all of the sci-fi and all the special effects, yeah. but at the, it's nice to have an emotional core that viewers can relate to Tim, as well. Tim, our, Tim Miller, our director, says something that I think it's spot on. He, he always says that, you know, you can have all these VFX explosions, but if you don't care about the characters that are in the explosions, the movie doesn't work. And that's, that's, that's really what that first setup is all about. Like really letting you in on Danny and Diego and the family and what their life is before this Terminator comes in. So, so that in some way it's just as grounded as, and as relatable as possible. So that you really care for these characters the second, you know, uh, this Terminator comes in and everything. Messes everything goes, up. Yeah. So you mentioned that you start out in Mexico City. You actually got your start in Mexico as a telenovela uh, star and a pop singer. So how has that prepared you for Hollywood and you know joining this huge franchise? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And you know, I started when I was 11 years old, singing first, and then sing, singing got me to acting. I didn't want to act in the first place. I really just started singing, but you know, uh, in Mexico, and especially back then, it was very common for uh, you know someone in the business to do singing, acting, and dancing, right? So, um, how how did that prepare me? You know, I got to put in my ten thousand hours <laughs> very, very, very young. Yeah. And uh, I knew, you know, from a very young age, since I was eight, that this is this was my passion, that this was my vocation, and then from that moment on, it was just you know uh, this was always my dream to be able to do uh, Hollywood movies and to, and, to, and to be able to be in the U.S. Uh, and to do stuff all over the place. So it was, you know, You're doing it. You're doing it. at a time. So. Yeah, you're doing Thank it. You. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay, so we can't talk about Terminator without talking about Arnold, obviously. Arnold. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had an impression. You just did one. <laughs> absolutely fantastic, Tim. That was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he, he, would, he would always say that. Uh, That's amazing. Also, I grew up in California, so he used to be my governor. So I, I have an affinity for Arnold as well. So what is he like behind the scenes? He's honestly a really funny guy. He's hilarious. He has a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, he kind of has like a very Mexican sense of humor. So that felt very kind of close to home. And he's just someone that, like, I, I, I wish... 
And I hope that whenever I'm his age, if I'm still making movies, I still uh, have as much fun as he does. You know, because he really, you know, there's a lot of people that take this job so seriously, which is great, right? And you and you and you need to, especially when you're starting, right? But you know, he he just kind of reminds you that hey, like we're making a movie. This is fun. You know, it's you you need to have fun. And he's he's a great team player and likes uh, for other people uh, to 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 win. You know, so he really encourages you uh, to do the best you can. You know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like having a little levity is always a good thing. Yeah. We also brought back Linda Hamilton into the yeah. franchise for this movie. She is such a legend, such a badass. What is it like working with her? Especially with her and Arnold. That has to be so exciting. Linda is the ultimate badass, really. I mean, she's, uh, there's very little acting going on when she plays Sarah Connor. You know, she is, uh, uh, she's a very intimidating woman, but in the best way possible. You know, she's, she's, uh, She's the best. I mean, when I first met her, we were in Spain because uh, we started shooting in Madrid. Uh, we did not shoot in Mexico City. We shot in Madrid and in Budapest. And, you know, I, Madrid's a very fun city, you know, and uh, uh, I spent a lot of time there. So I was like, guys, you know, let's, let's, let's have a cast dinner. Let's hang out. And she was like, no, Diego, I'm sorry. I have to study. You know, and she was, she, that's, that's how she was the entire shoot. You know, she would always have her script. She was always super focused um, really caring about, you know, her, her character and everything, which was, she, she really set the tone for all of us at the very beginning to be like, okay, we, we really have to uh, do our best here, you know, because she was really, really focused. That's why she's the best. She's an icon. Yeah. Well, Diego, thank you so much for stopping by. Congratulations on all of the success. Terminator Dark Fate hits theaters tomorrow, November 1st. Yep. Up next, Alex is talking about the new Dolly Parton podcast that everyone is talking about. Here's a tweet from Jenny Hain. If you're not listening to the podcast Dolly Parton's America, you're missing out. Fascinating look at the music industry, feminism, class, and regional politics. And here's a tweet from Blake Montgomery. So sorry I can't come into work. I'm busy obsessing over Dolly Parton's America. Joining me now is Shima Oliai, the producer and reporter uh, of the new hit podcast itself. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So. I could actually be that person in that tweet because <laughs> I have become so obsessed with this podcast and yeah. Dolly Parton in general that I just want to talk about it all the time. Um, were you a, a Dolly fan before becoming involved in this project? Actually, um, and I, I was an admirer from a distance. Um, I happened to see my first Dolly concert at the end of 2016. Okay. And it was the month before the election. Um, the election results were out, and I did see this massively diverse group of people all having the time of their lives and um, and enjoying a space that was the happiest place on earth. And I think that was when I started to get a little bit more interested in who the heck is this person and how was she 72 at that time and running around like she's the Energizer fairy. Yeah. So um, I, I've grown to love her more deeply as we've kind of 
dove into each of the Dolly verses that we explore in each of the episodes. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those Dolly verses. I am very much uh, part of the, I think, wave of millennials who, like, I knew Dolly growing up as a kind of target of people's jokes about her appearance. Yeah. And now I know her as someone who's become this, like, icon of feminism and LGBTQ people. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the Dolly verses that you explore in the series? Well, uh, one episode coming up is Dolitics. And so we... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have Dollyologists, Dolitics. Um, there's a Dolly Sans happening right now, but uh, one one episode uh, is about how she deals with politics, and mm. also we were able to speak with Jane Fonda wow. uh, for that episode, and we actually talk about a controversial moment in the public eye where both women take a different stance on something, mm. but it's really interesting to see how Dolly navigates political spaces, and we also visit the class that the series is named after, Dolly Parton's America, wow. which is at UT Knoxville, and a lot of the kids that uh, who are in that class come from the same hometown that Dolly came from. Yeah. And they're reckoning with her as a, this larger-than-life persona, but also as a figure of their hometown. It was fascinating to see. They shared a lot of really intimate stories that we mm. weren't expecting. And the final episode, we really dive into Dolly's faith mm. and kind of what is her love letter for America and the world, you mm. know, when she's gone. Mm -hmm. We were, because... Because of our uh, access with Dolly um, through Jad's dad, mm -hmm. uh, who is her friend, we were able to spend a lot of time with her over two years. Mm -hmm. And I think she shared some things that people have not heard yet. So we're really excited mm -hmm. um, to kind of use her life as a pathway mm -hmm. to other conversations and to some hope for the future. Mm, I, I yeah. love it, I love it. Um, I, first of all, I mean, I was also just struck by two years it took to make this series. Yeah. I mean, we get to hear you, I'm on the episode where you actually go back to her childhood home. Yeah. I, and I mean, I, I, it sounds like just so much work went into this. But one of the things that I was really struck by in one of the early episodes is when you, uh, Jad asks Dolly if she's a feminist. Yeah. And this, this made me like hold my breath for a moment and I was like, uh-oh, like, where are we going? Yeah. We were actually kind of shocked that she said no, because yeah. we thought everyone's a feminist now, everyone's for equality, but uh, kind of looking at where she was coming from and looking at her more deeply, I realized that we were kind of seeing with uh, more superficial eyes mm -hmm. than maybe she was. Hmm. When she's asked a question or when she's asked to be labeled or included in a particular group, mm -hmm. She very much resists that. Mm. She's a massively independent thinker, and I think she's seen over her five decades in the public eye, uh, she's seen a lot of swinging back and forth. She's seen people, you know, demonized and bullied. Mm -hmm. I don't think she wants anyone to own her. Yeah. And I think she's more focused on walking the walk versus talking the talk. Yeah. Um, and the same way that she's so imaginative in her songwriting, she's that imaginative and in... in who she's thinking about in an interview or um, in, in, what she, in what idea she decides to convey to the general public. She's really thinking about everyone and how things might impact them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's so she's so deft at navigating the media and all these things that would be yeah. really controversial and still maintaining her universal appeal. Um, one of the things that I loved uh, hearing about was that she wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the same yeah. night. And I think one of the guests said that she would be like the Mozart of her time. Do you think she's gotten her due musically for all of her writing? I don't think so at all. I think that was one of the beautiful parts of the first episode was uh, diving into some of her songs uh, from her early years, mm. but there were there's five thousand songs, and there are songs that haven't been released yet that we might be seeing, you know, sooner or later. But 
she had the quantity and the quality yeah. is unheard of. The fact that, you know, she told us that she wrote Jolene and I will always always love you on the same night is just, I mean, someone just wants to have one of those nights right. in their lifetime. Like, and that's it. And that's she good. had a hundred, yeah. like a thousand of those nights, and she has no musical training. It's all from her life, her inner life. She's she's really incredible. I think she's beyond Mozart. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say that, but the fact that I say say it, yeah, like, as I'm, an, I'm with you on as that. As an one. ordinary yeah. person, just being able to access that kind of creativity and that kind of prolific output, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah. yeah, it's really fun to start looking in. We only began to scratch the surface, but once you start diving, um, you'll find so many encouraging things. Um, through a lot of songs that have never, you know, that the public doesn't really know about. Mm -hmm. And it's all just been waiting there. Well, one of the stories that I especially loved um, was about the third verse of I Will Always Love You and yeah. that Whitney almost didn't record that third verse. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what happened there? So basically, uh, <laughs> yeah, we got on the phone with David Foster and he was sharing that, you know, uh, Kevin Costner had recommended, let's do the song I Will Always Love You. They couldn't find a finale song. And Kevin says, this is the perfect song. So David has his assistant go to the record store. They buy Linda Ronstadt's version of I Will Always Love You. He'd never heard the song. And he created, he produced the record uh, with that version, which left out the third verse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when they were recording with Whitney, he called Dolly all excited. And Dolly said, no, you got to do the third verse. And he's like, what third verse? And she said, it's the verse where it sums up everything. And... If you look, if you listen to the lyrics of that verse, it's where she's speaking directly to her, you know, uh, former uh, employer and uh, mentor, Porter Wagner, who she had quite a contentious time with. Yeah. Um, and it's the those lyrics are about kind of a level of forgiveness that you don't see right mm -hmm. now anywhere. And because of that, they re-recorded the song live immediately with Whitney and. Um, that song has the what we call the Porter verse, mm -hmm. uh, live and central, wishing him joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. I think actually that song is kind of a representation, and that moment with Porter is kind of representation of that she do, does walk the walk of of stick. Her stake in the sand is I will not cast aside anyone. Mm. People might not want to live in Dolly Parton's America, but she won't she won't abandon any human being. Mm. She won't cast aside anyone, no matter how much people might think she has reason to. Mm -hmm. She's radically welcoming. Mm. And I think that's, that, that kind of became the thesis of, of the entire nine episodes. Mm. How is she doing that? Mm. And it's phenomenal at this time. Well, I can't wait to hear the rest of the episodes. Yeah. And I could easily talk about this with you like for the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, but we have to leave it there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank me. you so much. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, and you can actually find Dolly Parton's America by WNYC Studios on many podcast platforms. Definitely listen to this one. So more Aim to DM is up next. Welcome back. And I have to say, I am committed and ready, willing and able to continue to evangelize Dolly Parton, or at least this podcast. Like, it's so good. It's one of those podcasts that I personally hadn't heard about. And then all of a sudden, like we have a podcast slack at work here at BuzzFeed and everyone's talking about this podcast. I'm seeing it all over Twitter, all over, all over Reddit, all over everything. Yeah. So that to me is like, this is a good podcast when I feel like so many different people from so many organic corners of the internet are enjoying it. Yes, so, and that is, that is do Dolly in a nutshell, so. True, yeah, yeah. true. Well, after our conversation about Halloween costumes, our own Jake tweeted, 
I only really dressed up for Halloween when I was younger. So here is a photo of me as Winnie the Pooh with my great-great-grandmother. Oh, great-great. I have to say, you know, I like this Winnie the Pooh costume because it also looks very comfortable. Yeah. You know, like a nice onesie situation. At your school, was there a trend to dress up as a baby? I feel like in like middle school. Yeah, like when I was in, I think I was like nine or ten, Evan wanted to be a baby because you just got to wear like a big onesie to school. I don't hate it. I mean, I would do that now. (laughs) Well, our own Shanice Bland added, I was Tinkerbell in fifth grade, and this is so precious. I love this one. Cute. Oh my gosh, so cute. And Anna Bulox tweeted this during Alka's conversation with Paul Feig. Freaks and geeks forever. Paul Feig was also just delightful. Yeah, he seems so so engaged. I love a simple favor. That if I was like a, I don't know, if I was like a cool Halloween person, I would try to be Blake. Uh, in that movie. I, I still think that you should recommit yourself to Halloween. So. You know, maybe in 2020. Maybe okay, that'll right. be my year. All right, well, thank you to our guests, Katie Natopoulos, Emily Stewart, Grady Hendricks, Shima Oliaye, Diego Bonetta, and Paul Feig. And thank you to Stephanie for joining oh, me this week. I miss you guys. I know. Hopefully you can come back oh, definitely. more often. I love being here with you all. Yes, well, I will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. with Chantal Rochelle, co-hosting. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. 